Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. everybody and welcome to Nightlight. I want to thank Ken Quiethawk first of all for his amazing intro. His voice always resonates so deeply for me and, and puts me in that right place to be in at the right time. Uh, it, please check him out on the internet. He's a native storyteller and he and his wife have preserved that, that wonderful, wonderful way of holding history and cosmology. Definitely something you you might like to uh, look into and experience. <clears throat> Excuse me, I have tonight with me Joseph Selby, and he's written an amazing book, Break Through the Limits of the Brain. Um, we had him on a, a while back, and we started talking about his material, and um, it so fascinated me, I found, found another book, and here we are. Uh, this one is A Life-Changing Guide to Understanding Your Brain and How to Change It for the Good. Break Through the Limits of the Brain connects the dots between the discoveries of neuroscience and the meditation-born spiritual experience and offers proven and practical ways to tap into the life-changing, life-enhancing abilities of our super-consciousness potential. The book debunks scientific materialism's brain-based explanation for consciousness and intelligence, including the brain as a supercomputer and artificial intelligent models and explains the view of many prominent and open-minded scientists that an all-pervading intelligent consciousness is the foundation of reality. An age-old belief shared by saints, sages, mystics, and those who've had near-death experiences. He explores the current neuroscience understanding of the brain's influence on our thoughts, emotions, and behavior, and balances that understanding with neuroscience's discoveries of neuroplasticity and our innate ability to rewire the brain for any new purpose, from the material to the mystical. Excuse me. 
pulling gun at me. Sorry about that. Meditation is a channel is the central theme of the book. What it is, how to do it, why it works, its physical, mental, and emotional benefits as measured by neuroscientists, and how it re- rewires the brain for superconscious awareness, so you can achieve whatever you put your mind to. The book offers proven practices for bringing superconsciousness awareness into your life for success energy, health, peace of mind, and lasting happiness. Joseph makes the complex and obscure simple and clear. He's a founding member of the meditation-based community, Ananda, and a dedicated meditator for, for over 40 years. He's taught yoga and meditation throughout the United States and Europe, and he's the author of the popular Physics of the God, Physics of God, and we had him on for that book, and the yugas, which he will be on um, in a couple of weeks, I think, so that he's, he's going to be a regular here on the show, um, intentional or unintentional, it seems. Welcome to the show, Joseph. Uh, pleasure to be on. Well, it's a pleasure to have you back because you, you, you brought forth some fascinating material last time and we didn't really have a chance to go further into it so i'm really glad i'm really glad you wrote another book and and it's so that so that we can kind of get into this um this aspect of the understanding of consciousness super consciousness and our in our brain and how how it is there to work with obviously and it controls a lot of the 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 um automatic response type things within our within our physical body and and I think it it more than than any other book that I've done in a long time, kind of brings up the point or or the, the or the theory or, or I don't know what you want to call it, but that that our, our our physical body is sort of an avatar for our awareness, which does not have a physical body, and therefore. Um, it, it gives you a better understanding of, of your physical reality, why you're here, and, and where we go when we, you know, shed this avatar and return to wholeness in another dimension. Yes, I mean, I think that is maybe the, the core theme of the book is that we tend to because of modern sciences um, or mainstream sciences conviction that nothing exists other than matter and energy, uh, most of us become convinced that we are our bodies, that our physical bodies are us, and when that physical body dies, we're gone. There's nothing left of us. And uh, it's a very strong trend, a very strong theme running through our kind of world consciousness. But mainstream science itself has a broader view of that reality than kind of gets through into popular awareness. And there are many theories in physics. M-theory is one of my favorites, which Uh, We can talk about if we have more time, but Uh they basically tell us that there is a a reality that is 
pure energy that not only exists, but actually sustains and creates the physical universe, that everything we see through our, sense, uh, through our senses or through scientific instruments that kind of extend our senses, all of that that is perceivable in that way is a three-dimensional physical realm, but underlying it is this vast two-dimensional energy realm. And for those of you are, who have you know, familiarity with various spiritual teachings, you'll quickly recognize that concept in spiritual teachings as being astral realms or spirit mm-hmm. realms or etheric realms. But little do people realize that there are physical theories on the frontiers of physics that confirm the reality of this more subtle realm. So what I try to do in the book, try to do in the physics of God as well, but I try to do in the break through the limits of the brain is make the make the case for your brain being a physical receiver of more subtle realities coming from mind and that mind exists in this two-dimensional energy realm uh, and then interacts with the brain. And this dynamic between brain and mind, I think, is kind of central to understanding who we are and how we can better our lives. Um, there, you know, science or I don't know where I read it. I, unfortunately, I read so much. I really don't keep everything on three by five cards so I can go to whichever book it came from. But I've always had the impression, and I've heard it said over and over again, that we only use six to eight percent of our brain, and it's sort of like, so what is the rest of it for, and can it be? for the connection to super consciousness or higher consciousness in other realms is is that the purpose of it? i mean has have these are these avatars the, the physical bodies that we're in now are we wired for that yet we haven't connected to it yet well the the degree to which we make use of the brain is really up to us there is uh no limit to how much we can wire the brain to support activities that we take up. The brain is, um, there's a concept called neuroplasticity, which essentially means that the, the way in which neurons in our brain connect and interconnect with other neurons in the brain is plastic. It's not fixed. Um, when we are born, we're born with very few built-in circuits, connections between neurons in our brains. And we start, you know, probably while we're still in our mother's womb, we start making neural connections. We start building these circuits. And the, the ones we build to begin with are uh, the circuits that help us move our body, uh, that that help us grasp things that 
enable us to eventually walk, that enable us to talk. And we literally wire circuits in our infancy that we use for the rest of our lives. We may improve on them. Uh, you know, if we take up a sport, we may get, uh, we may develop more circuits for controlling our body than we had before, but they build on these circuits that we developed as a child. And then we get into talking and understanding speech and we get into emotional reactions to the world in which we live. And those too build circuits. We have emotional circuits that connect us from brain to mind. We have memories that connect us from brain to mind. We have thoughts or the, the trigger point for thoughts that connect us from brain to mind. So how much we decide to make use of the brain is, is really up to us. But it's not important for happiness or for um, connecting to spirit that we use lots and lots of our brain circuitry. It's there to be used for for any purpose that we want to put it, but the circuitry that will connect us to spirit also has to be created, and it doesn't necessarily take up more of the brain. In fact, it tends to be concentrated in the frontal lobe or the prefrontal cortex, which is more or less right behind the forehead. And as we build circuits in there, which are the the result of meditating, uh, concentrating while we're in meditation, the experiences we have in meditation, all of those uh, repeated experiences build more and more circuits in the forebrain. Uh, probably everybody has the experience when you first start to meditate that it's challenging, that mm -hmm. you can't sit still, you can't keep your mind from racing off, um, you might get caught up in some emotional concern you had from that day or the day before, and you come out of it and you say, "Well, I don't really get, <laughs> I don't really get why meditation is such a cool thing." Uh, and what that really means is that you didn't meditate at all, or perhaps more kindly put, is <clears throat> you weren't able to take advantage of what meditation can actually do for you because. You were caught up in the normal kind of thinking and feeling that you have on a daily basis. But if you stick with meditation, not only will you start to have more positive experiences where you genuinely feel more calm, you feel like it gives you a lift, you feel like you're clearer, more energized. Not only do you have those experiences, but circuits begin to be built in the brain in response to routinely doing that that make it easier to have those kind of experiences. So I think when I've been meditating very, a very long time, and so I've built up this kind of uh, neural support so that when I sit down to meditate, I can most of the time get into a deeper experience than the conscious mind very quickly. One thing that, that I saw in your book that, that 
I was I was actually you know really intrigued by. Um, you spoke of people who had had you know parts of their brain, half of their brain, even a little more of their brain removed, and yet were able to live full, rich lives and as though they had all of their brain. So that so that rewiring can can almost it can almost cover everything that the parts of the brain that, that that aren't there would have covered if they had been there. And that to me was Well I think what they what they learned to do was they learned to function as fully able human beings um, without having any idea that they had any kind of disability in the in the sense that we normally think of that. Uh, they didn't know that they had limited brain matter, and it was only discovered later in life. But I think through uh, just being around people, they just did what other people did, and uh, the brain gave them as much access to the mind. Again, the mind is independent of the brain. The mind is, is beyond the physical. Uh-huh. Their brain gave them the trigger points, the connections to the mind that they needed, but once they had those connections to the mind, it didn't really matter how much brain they had. And what you were referring to was a, was a fascinating study that um, a number of children were treated when they were quite young because they had been uh, diagnosed with what's called water on the brain. So water mm-hmm. on the brain just means that there's a, a lot more cerebrospinal fluid in the brain and a lot less uh, white matter and gray matter, or put another way, a lot less neurons than normal people had. And so they were treated for this condition, hydrocephalitis, and it was believed that they had been effectively treated and they were, they were cured. Uh, and this researcher came along later many years later, like 20 years or more after they had been treated, because he wanted to see uh, what happened. He wanted to measure how effective the treatment was, and in most of the cases, uh, he found these you know, full-size brains. But he was astonished to find that there were 60 of these people who had grown up who, in fact, weren't cured, and over half of them had above-average IQs, and one of them had an IQ of 136 and was employed as a mathematician. So wow. he, wrote a, <laughs> he wrote an article uh, with the very provocative title of, Do We Really Need a Brain? <laughs> and it's a, good, it's a good question. You know, if you can, and, and the, uh, the one statistic I didn't use, which is perhaps the most amazing, is this fellow who had, the IQ of 136 and the and was working as a mathematician as an adult he had only 5% of the normal white and gray matter the normal number of neurons that the rest of us have so we don't actually need our brains they're useful we can rewire them we can use them to do things but in sort of normal mode, we are more in our mind than in our brain. The brain is just 
receiving things uh, or sending information to the brain about, uh, you know, movements we're making so that there there is this back and forth. But it's really the mind that we inhabit. And uh, the, the vast amount, the lion's share of our experience as human beings are our thoughts, our feelings, our memories, are all in the mind and not really yeah, ever yes. in the brain. <clears throat> I, I kind of, because because we talk about the same thing using different terminologies, would it be appropriate to say that the mind and consciousness are the same thing? Um, I think that the mind is born out of consciousness, but it has sort of a special role to play, um, mm-hmm. and that as we grow in, um, you know, what the saints experience, what the masters experience, is that their mind becomes infinite, that they they expand Uh the mind into that infinite consciousness. So uh, they're definitely closely associated, but I think that the mind is a a particular manifestation of consciousness, if you will. It's maybe a little bit of a picky point, (laughs) you know. Uh, (laughs) Well, you know, we have we have um, <clears throat> elements within our body that that the body controls: breathing, swallowing, eating, eliminating. I mean, you know, there are things that that our body does without us, quote unquote, thinking about our heart beating, especially the lungs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, <clears throat> so those are those are um, pathways that were established, I guess, before we were actually born. And they they enable the physical body to be born and then start learning. So Yes. I so I mean I mean there are certain things that are, I I guess it's almost like a car. You know, it's it's there are certain things that are standard and then, you know, you can you can you can expand into other things that are special, but but not until you actually are here and functional. Yeah, and it, it's it's interesting. I mean, I think that the the human body is not a product of evolution, but it is a manifestation of God's creative plan. And I think mm-hmm. that body our bodies are designed to allow us to experience higher consciousness. Uh, but what is I find fascinating is that, as you were saying, you know, a car comes with standard things, is that our autonomic functions, which, as you mentioned, were regulating the heartbeat, keeping it going, uh, managing breath rate, although we can kind of override breath rate if we choose, but if we stop Mm -hmm. thinking about it, it goes back to, uh, you know, being regulated. All of these function through a separate set of nerves. We have an entire different nervous system that maintains all of that uh, processing, and it connects to different parts of the brain than the ones that we use to 
uh, stimulate memories and to uh, stimulate thoughts and feelings. So we're really set up so that this is, you, you keep using the term, and I, I do enjoy it, which is that our physical body is our avatar, and our avatar mm-hmm. is functional. It's, it's already ready to go, uh, but we have to figure out what we're going to do with it. And uh, <laughs> But I, I, we won't I often... automatically die if we don't figure out what to do with it. Well, yeah. Um, I often have described our our bodies as a um, a Lamborghini, and <clears throat> and that we weren't given the owner's manual, and it's for us to find all the bells and whistles that are installed automatically, and that we have access to. But with no owner's manual, we have to kind of stumble around and do it ourselves. I mean, yeah. I, I got a new I got a new car two years ago. And I I have yet figured out what all the buttons are for. Now uh-huh. I probably could sit, I could probably sit down and read the owner's manual, but it's such more it's so much more fun to just kind of play with it and figure it out myself. But but I think to me that's what our bodies are, and and especially with with um, the ability to stretch ourselves beyond our physical reality into a super consciousness reality. Um, it's 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 one of those it's where magic happens, and I, I love the fact that that you know you talk about it because certainly people who have experienced near death experiences and and things like that have been to that realm, and um, I think uh, a long time ago uh, on my late husband's show we did a whole. Um, uh, a series of three shows on near-death experiences, and one of the people, you know, was went through her experience and and how she was swept out of her body, and 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 she was very specific. And this was a young girl who had attempted suicide a number of times, and she said, "You have to understand that I was not supported by love, surrounded by love, embraced by love." She said. I became love, and mm-hmm. it was it, it was a moment where everybody just you know caught their breath because it, it it gave us a greater understanding of the depth of the experience she had and why she didn't want to come back, but mm-hmm. she did and she's fine. But but I think that that. It's so important for people to understand the power that we have within our bodies. and Or beyond our bodies. <laughs> and beyond, yeah. Well, yeah. The, the reality is, I, I think you, you made it very clear in, in one section of the book, which I loved, that we have one foot um, on the earth and one foot on the other side. We have one foot in a two-dimensional world and one foot in the three-dimensional world. And it's the two-dimensional world that is controlling what's going on in the three-dimensional world. And it you made it so clear. And, and once, once you understand that, it means that you can share with the two realities. You don't have to just be experiencing something. You can be creating something in the three-dimensional world as opposed to um, you know, you 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 have control to create something in the three-dimensional world that originated in the two-dimensional world to manifest it. 
Yes. Can I go on? Creativity um, is really something that I think it's important for people to um, tune into and and use deliberately because it's a... uh, like a divine function that you have. Mm-hmm. And the more you use it, the more connected you are to this higher dimension, this two-dimensional realm that we're all going to go to when we die anyway. But mm-hmm. it is also the source of love. It is also the source of joy. You use the example of this woman saying, and I was just, I was just, I was love. I wasn't surrounded by it. I was love. I read another um, similar story about a woman who said that when she uh, found herself in these heavenly realms in her near-death experience, she said she was filling and filling and filling and filling with joy until she was so uh, uncomfortable with the with the the novel experience that she said to her guide, please stop, stop. <laughs> and her guide was was startled that she would ask for that and realized she just needed a, a, a moment to, to um, tune in to the fact that this joy was not something outside her, but it was she was just feeling her true self for the first time in you know, her entire life. I think a lot of people do experience that and don't recognize it. And I think one of your great examples was how runners get into the zone. They call it the zone. And I think that that is exactly what they're experiencing. They they, They take themselves out of the physical into that zone where magic happens. Yes, and many of them do um, appreciate that magic is happening, but they don't necessarily put it together as being in a uh, you know a higher spiritual state of awareness. But but uh-huh. some do. You know, there is uh, there are several books out there that just concentrate on the experience of athletes who you know sort of became spiritualized because of that being in the zone and experiencing that high state of awareness and you know then they want to find out well what what happened to me why is this happening and how do i <laughs> how do i continue it you know and and many yeah. of them, as you would expect got into meditation and and wanted to know more but i think when you have just so much energy pouring through you that Many of them describe the experience as just one of letting go. They're not making the usual kind of deliberate, rational choices of, oh, I'm going to move left. I'm, you know, I'm pretend I'm a basketball player. You know, I'm going to move left. I'm going to go around this guy, and then I'm going to do a jump shot. They just do it without thought. And in that, mm-hmm. doing it without thought, they do it better. They realize that. Well, yeah. The, the conscious mind is getting in the way. Right. That you know, that's exactly what happens. And um I I 
preach from a soapbox every chance I get that the creativity and flowing with creativity helps you to enhance uh, your connection to the source of uh, the source of all creation, the divine, whatever word you want, uh, super consciousness, higher consciousness, <clears throat> being in a creative state where you're not thinking you're just being or doing um, energizes you. You're not tired. You're full of energy. It's 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 the greatest high ever. Now I I've I have to well well yeah. As far as I'm concerned, it's the greatest high ever. I've never had a drug high or anything like that. Um, I never did that stuff. But but I, I I know I've talked with people that have experienced highs from drugs, and sometimes it's a very similar experience. I I know that. When I've experienced it's always been joyful. Um, some people have used hallucinogenics and have not had a good experience. But, but <clears throat> if you're doing it through meditation, you know, then you have control to a great degree as to where you're going and how you're getting there. And you know, you're not using something artificial so that you're, you're going at your own speed in your own way to your own place. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that that sometimes the kind of peak experiences that can happen through uh, sports, as we've already talked about, or through a really particularly good hallucinogenic experience, can set people's feet on the path towards experiencing it through meditation. But mm-hmm. that can be the wake up to them that there is more, and that, that I, I had a profound hallucinogenic experience that I look back on as being a gift that got me mm-hmm. uh, fully committed to uh, a spiritual life. So. Oh yeah, it, it's it's. I think I think once you have you know tasted it, once you have been there, you want to go back, and and certainly. Meditation is a wonderful way to get there, and and it, I think it's the most reliable. It, yeah, and the safest. Um, I, I know that you know most people starting meditation is probably the hardest thing. Once you get into, excuse the term again, once you get into that flow, um, then your body knows where you're going and it just takes you there. But but I, I guess I guess that's that's part of what you you were talking about about rewiring yourself. It's it's a process that doesn't happen overnight. But is it the repetition that creates the channel that allows you to get that to that place? Yeah, the brain is a is a um, obliging servant. So anything you do, whether it's some physical thing or a uh, concentration, uh, so whether it's a, a mental function, emotional function, physical function, your brain, if it sees you doing it several times, begins to make circuits that support that activity. So the obvious one is the physical. So if you, you take up an instrument, uh, most people have the experience that it's, you know, it's really hard to get your fingers to be where you know they ought to be and Mm -hmm. then 
you will experience that um, after a while, it's easier to put your fingers there. And that's because your brain is uh, supporting it. It takes less mental focus, less willpower to get your hands to do what you want them to do to play the instrument because your brain is giving you a little uh, boost, giving you a little extra uh, help in doing it. So when we have that same effect happen for when we meditate, it makes meditation easier and easier to do. And it is a um, very welcome support for meditation. And I highly recommend anybody who is building a meditation practice to uh, realize that for the first few weeks, you need to do it yourself, so to speak. You need to really be um, set on doing it. But after a few weeks, you'll start to get this boost from your brain. It doesn't take that long. You may even notice it in a week. But if you meditate for months with the boost, you can build a, a circuit that will uh, encourage you to meditate. You know, like if you meditate first thing in the morning, when you wake up, your neural circuits will fire and they'll say, okay, let's meditate. And even before you're, you know, fully awake, you're, you're putting on your meditation clothes, you're walking towards your meditation spot, uh, and, and you're there meditating uh, with far less effort than it would have taken uh, had you not built that circuit. So rely on your brain to be a helpful uh, servant. It will do that. But you have to get it going. You have to get the, the process started. But once you get the process started, uh, circuits can be powerful aids to the point where you may wake up and your first thought is, ugh, I don't want to meditate. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> Maybe it's something else, you know, some other habit. I don't want to do that. I'm, I'm fed up with that. But the habit has become such a, a strong one that you do it anyway. And that's when you know that your circuits are really strong is when you do mm -hmm. the good things that you built that circuit to support even when you're not entirely in the mood to do them well we've we've talked about you know <clears throat> the the positives from it you know with with greater awareness and but i i, I think I've heard people say meditation is just for those who are on a spiritual journey, or those are those, you know, and and you know, it, it's kind of like you know, I sit and I chuckle and I'm thinking, no, meditation is for everybody. Even I, even my cats meditate. So, <laughs> or they, well, they do. They look like if it. I'm sitting, yeah. if I am sitting down meditating, I will all of a sudden realize I have both cats on the floor. Exactly, you know, they're not in a meditation pose, but but they're right there, and they feel the shift in the energy, and they are affected uh -huh. by it. So, oh yeah. So, so there's there's a, a, a I, I kind of want to bring this down to the level of how you know it, it it does connect you to higher consciousness, super consciousness, 
and and it does it can change your life it can give you you know lead you to greater success more energy greater health peace of mind and lasting happiness and so how does that translate for people who are not necessarily on a we're all on a spiritual journey whether or not any you know everyone you know admits to it or not but that's why you're in the physical body as far as i'm concerned but let's let's give it to those who are who are looking for you know what can this do for me how can it enhance success energy health peace of mind and lasting happiness well there's several ways and i i agree with you it it doesn't have to be you don't have to have any preconceived belief before meditation can be effective you don't have mm-hmm. to believe anything you no could be attracted to it for other reasons, as you suggest. And one of which is people just want to be calmer. They want to be more relaxed. The uh, culture we live in today is one of endless distractions of people uh, moving from screen to screen as they go through their day. And their screens are full of information and music and interesting tidbits and it's very easy to just be distracted from waking until going to sleep and that drains people people after a while uh, almost universally whether you know again regardless of any spiritual belief will say i'm not happy with this i'm not liking this i don't want to feel this way and i would say for anybody who wants to get away from that kind of drag on their energy and drag on their happiness meditation is perfect because what it will do is it will relax the mind it will make you less prone to want to be distracted it'll naturally kind of center you so you get through your day with a more uh kind of purpose you're not as easily distracted your concentration can be greatly enhanced by meditation. So, you know, a lot of people think when you when you use the word concentration, it just means that, you know, you kind of knot your forehead and really think hard. But concentration <laughs> is really more, uh, more a matter of all of your energies being focused so that you can be more productive. You know, you can go through your day with less resistance to the chores that normally you have to do. You get through them more quickly. You get through them more uh, effectively. You may get through them by applying more creativity to what you have to do. And, of course, there's large parts of our life that isn't about chores, but they're what we've chosen to do. Uh, we might call it work. It might be a hobby. But applying that kind of focused, centered energy of yourself to those things can give you much more satisfaction in in doing them, and you you do them better. So meditation really is just a, you know, in one sense you can think of meditation as being like exercise. You know, you exercise to make your body uh, more responsive, uh, to 
give you a sense of uh, energy throughout your day rather than fatigue, gives you strength, gives you that feeling of command over your physical body. In a very real way, meditation is uh, exercise for the brain and heart, that by meditating, you develop mental strength, mental powers, mental concentration, uh, emotional calmness, uh, emotional awareness, uh, emotional empathy with those in your life. And that, again, regardless of what you believe, all these things will just happen because they are natural uh, results of meditating. So there's there's every reason to meditate, and there's almost none not to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I can think of none that uh, – I, I can't think of any downside to meditation. Uh, I think that in many ways it changes your energetic field even when you're, you know, even when you're not, if you are a meditator, your energetic field changes and will attract to you other people who are of a similar energy so that, so that you know, for those who are looking for um, companions, partners, you know, the love of my life, um, if, if you become the kind of person you want to attract, that's what happens so that it's 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 really a sense of putting control for your own um your own experience here in the third dimension you have control over what happens now i think the the thing is when you say say to somebody you have control you know they kind of look at you and they you know, I, I get a lot of the, yeah, right. It's like however much you want to put into it is what you're going to get out of it. Right. You, you, well, I would say un, unquestioningly that you have the potential for that kind of control. But probably mm-hmm. the reason people look at you in askance when you say it is that they don't feel in control of their life. And, uh, and um, I think there's sort of two facets to that. One is that you don't feel in control. You feel like life is happening to you rather Uh than you are, you know, ahead of the wave or whatever and and making things happen the way you want to. That's one side of it. And I think, again, meditation will help you feel like it's not happening to you. The other side of it is you don't – I don't believe you ever can fully control the life around you, which is what people try to do, mistakenly oh, hoping yeah. that by controlling the world around them, uh, you know, they can they can kind of hold it in just the right way so that they'll be happy. Um, and then inevitably things happen that are beyond our control, uh, and then people feel a sense of loss or unhappiness about it. So you can't necessarily control to any great degree, the world around you, but you can control your reaction to it. You can be centered in a way. Uh, a good friend used to use the analogy of like riding a surfboard. So when you're on the surfboard, you don't have any control over the wave. 
you have to make minute adjustments to stay on the wave just right so that you can stay upright on your surfboard and make it into shore. So uh, we're all riding waves that we have no control of in the in the grand scheme of things, but we can learn to control ourselves so we can maximize the ride, so we can make that Absolutely. ride as joyful and as serviceful, as productive as we possibly can. And then you can get great satisfaction. But then inevitably, and this is what I find to be uh, universally true of people who meditate a lot, they may be meditating to uh, do the kind of things that I was talking about just a few minutes ago, you know, of increasing their um, emotional health and, and developing the powers of their mind. But inevitably, they start feeling spirit. And that leads them to wanting more. Because when you feel spirit in meditation, when you feel a joy or a love or a peace that uh, sort of paraphrasing the Bible that, that pass, passes understanding when it comes just unbidden, welling up within you, having nothing to do with anything that's happening in your life. You know, the usual source of happiness for, for people is when, you know, they have a a pleasant experience or they get a bonus at work or their wife is particularly loving to them. All these things are happening to them from the outside to make them happy. But in meditation, people will often have this experience where they just feel wonderful and they begin mm -hmm. to then discover directly that it's not about belief, it's about reality. The reality is we are spirit and when we are able to focus our attention on that inner spirit, we experience it far more deeply than we do when we're distracted and, and just kind of running running through our life. Yeah, I've often said to people, you know, we create our reality by our perception of it. And meditation helps you to look through different eyes at your reality and see the positives, the beauty, the enchantment, the, the magic that is around you. And uh, even the pandemic where we were all confined for a while, I, I took that as a, as a gift, you know, I have this time now that I can use and I don't have I can't go I can't go out so I I have the the joy of being in my own surrounding with my own energetic field and I can do magical things here cuz I'm not distracted by having to go out um and and the pandemic was a horrible thing and you know people did pass away and you know there there were definite bad parts of it but I I took it as a gift and you know, and, and so I think that it 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 does enhance your perception of your reality. The more you the more you experience it, and you know, you speak about rewiring your brain 
to create these patterns or these pathways. Um, how does one go about rewiring their brain? Well, the the core of rewiring is repeating something over and uh-huh. over so that the brain wires circuits to support that. Um, but the brain also connects circuits to circuits. So one of the uh, gifts, I think, of neuroscience uh, for us is the understanding that if you deliberately associate different things with something that you're wanting to do, you build a stronger circuit. So let me give you an example. If you're trying to uh, establish a habit of meditation, it's really good to surround that process of meditation with things that you like. So, for example, uh, have a really comfortable sitting arrangement. You can sit in a chair. You can sit on the floor. You can sit cross-legged. You can kneel. Uh, There are many, many different positions. uh, And as long as you uh, end up in a position where you're sitting up straight, your back is straight, not leaning on something, uh, any one of those is fine. But find one that you really like. Uh, Get just that perfect chair that's just the right height and the pillow that gives you the right kind of comfort uh, when you sit on it. Do things that you want to associate with meditation before you meditate. Listen to uh, a particularly uplifting piece of music that's meaningful to you or uh, listen to chants that take your mind out of the normal sort of, uh, you know, beats and trends of music and surround your uh, meditation space with things that positive reminders for you of your goal of meditating. Maybe they're crystals, maybe they're pictures of saints, I'm hearing some beeping here. I'm going to change from my headset to my handset. Okay. And so as many of those other things as you can put together to kind of surround the meditation practice, all of those have all of those things create circuits as well. Your brain supports seeing the pictures on your on your wall in your meditation room. Your brain supports um, the the music that you listen to. And here's the key: is there's a saying in neuroscience that um, neurons that wire together fire together. So if you even see some of the pictures that you've put up on the wall around your meditation room or meditation space, that will fire the circuit. And that circuit will then fire all of the circuit. And it will remind you, it will reinforce the fact that you like to meditate. So Uh as many ways as you can think of to make your meditation experience a rich, full, and positive one, 
will build a more lasting circuit faster. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Oh, sorry. I heard some some sounds. I thought maybe I had lost you. So (laughs) that's the gift of neuroscience is that we can create these circuits more intentionally and make them uh, stronger for us immediately. So this is true of anything, not just meditation. If you want to have a uh, change your way of eating, you can create a circuit where uh, the new kinds of food you eat are really pleasing to you. You know, to make a great effort to find new recipes that you like, new foods that you like. So you look forward to your new diet. And anytime you see these uh, or, or remember or um, taste any of these, they will fire all the circuits that support this new direction. So it's very difficult. A lot of people make the mistake of um, trying to overcome bad habits, unwanted habits, by resisting them and um, basically saying to themselves that they just are no longer going to do that. And you can do that for a while, but it gets to be stressful if all you're thinking about is resisting a habit. Uh, It's much more effective to create a new pathway for your interest, a new pathway for your energy into a new habit that you find attractive and let your experience be positive rather than the negative of of resisting a habit you don't like. No, again, it's going to take weeks to months for any circuit or group of circuits to be formed in your brain. And so for those weeks to months, you are going to have to put extra energy into whatever it is you want to build. That's one reason to just do one at a time. Just do one new direction at a time. There's uh, avoid the New Year's Eve resolution <laughs> syndrome where you come up with a, yeah. a, a long list of changes you want to make in yourself. Generally, when you do that for the first few weeks uh, in January, you do them all, and then it becomes so stressful that in February you've forgotten them all. Just pick one. Pick a a new direction that is going to be uh, the most important thing that you can do. And I always say to people, if, if if you're not already meditating, then make meditation that first one you'll do. But whatever you decide, if it's a major new direction you're trying to uh, forge in your life, just pick one. Concentrate on that one. Know that for weeks to months, you're going to have to put a lot of um, you know, diligent, vigilant energy into that habit. But once you do, then you have a supportive neural set of circuits that will support that habit going forward. One thing that that has always um, intrigued me, um, people that that come into this lifetime that that have um, a particular skill set, 
a musician, somebody who, you know, like like Beethoven, who could, you know, at seven was writing, you know, symphonies or whatever. Um, is that something that was brought into this lifetime from from the, the second dimensional realm? Um, I mean, there there are people that that have a talent, have a gift, have have a gift. I guess is the best way to to put it. That that from early on they appear to have these channels already in, instilled within them, and you know, is is is. I know it's a little off the subject, but there are people that have a talent and a skill and a gift that that they can't explain, but it that it's there. So is that something that came from super consciousness, or is that just something that was in their package of general things that they were instilled with? Well, I think that um, it doesn't necessarily come in as pre-wired brain circuits. I think uh-huh. we have very, very few pre-wired brain circuits, uh, but it can come with just simply who we are. So one of the things that uh, the saints and sages tell us, but near-death experiencers in particular tell us, is that when they died and left the body behind, they continued to experience themselves in the same way that they did when they were in the body. They had the same kind of mindset. They had the same memories. They had the same thoughts. They had the same emotional um, sort of starting point. In other words, mm-hmm. who they were in the life they lived in a physical body is immediately who they are when they come into the heavenly realms or the astral realms. Once in the astral realms, then they start to kind of remember and wake up to the higher consciousness that they had. But all of these tendencies that we develop in a a lifetime stay with us as, you know, for lack of a, a more detailed way of saying it, they're just kind of who we are. They're the, the things we like to do, uh-huh. the tendencies that we have. So that when we are reborn, if we die for real, not just a near-death experience, and then we are reborn, that same person comes back. And it's almost inevitable that during their new lifetime, these tendencies that they had from past lives are going to start coming out. Now, in a given lifetime, you may not have opportunities for everything it is that you have tendencies toward to to come forward. Um, you know, maybe you were born into a family with parents who weren't musicians and therefore uh, musical tendencies that you had developed in past lives don't get awakened in that lifetime, but maybe other mental tendencies do. If you look at these people that you were mentioning, you know, who come in and have extraordinary abilities like Mozart and Beethoven, they were born into musical families. They were born into uh, 
environments where they heard music all day long and they were surrounded by musical instruments. So the soul isn't necessarily going to be able to manifest all of those tendencies unless there are some avenues that open up in that lifetime for them to, to do so. But they're all there. They're all within us. And who knows how many tendencies you and I and everyone else has that are just dormant. They're just dormant right now because the lifetime we're in is, you know, we're, we've, we've awakened the ones that we're going to use and develop this time, but there could be many more uh, that, that we haven't uh, had a chance to awaken. Yeah, I just, <clears throat> I do wonder sometimes because, you know, um, the, it, it's almost, it's, it's the spirit, the spirit is immortal. So probably millions and millions and millions of lifetimes have, have transpired. Um, but I, I want to get kind of back to our two-dimensional reality because it it feels as though um, the two-dimensional reality has created the three-dimensional reality. So in a, everything is in the etheric in the two-dimensional reality. So they have created a third-dimensional reality, which is physical. Um, is there a purpose to that? Well, I think all of that I like to think of as the the mechanism of creation, that mm-hmm. the way I understand the sort of broader metaphysics of the cosmos is that God created the cosmos in mm-hmm. stages. He created a stage that was just pure thought, and then he created a stage from the thought that was pure energy, and then from that stage of pure energy, the stage of matter was created. So there were these uh, stages of the mechanism of creation that took place. But that consciousness existed and will always exist beyond the creation. God is not his creation. God is imbued in his creation, if you will, but he is not uh-huh. his creation. He existed before and will always exist beyond it. But so these um, mechanisms include this process whereby two-dimensional pure energy astral forms and those forms can be quite elaborate the people in the near-death experiencers ex, uh, experiences describe the heavens in great detail and that they're they're especially beautiful but they're nonetheless somewhat similar to the way our three-dimensional world looks. Some people have said that the the astral two-dimensional regions are like bright, sharp prints, and then the physical world is a kind of a duller um, manifestation of it. It doesn't, because the matter that is created 
in the three-dimensional world isn't as fluid. It isn't like pure light in and of itself. It doesn't have that uh, incredible beauty and uh, perfection that it finds in the two-dimensional astral region. But those forms are the the guide. They're the template for the manifestation that we experience in the three-dimensional physical world. So our world is beautiful. You can find beauty in our world. But uh, um, many of the near-death experiencers just sort of gasp at how perfectly beautiful the two-dimensional astral regions are in comparison, but yet they they can see the continuity. They can clearly see that the perfect template exists in two-dimensional reality, and then it expands, if you will, into this three-dimensional uh, manifestation from the astral, from the pure energy realm. Well, why are why are scientists so intent on, ex- on intellectually explaining something they can't see, feel, smell, or taste? That's an interesting question. Never been asked that before. Um, a lot of exploration in physics these days is in mathematics which has to be the most abstract uh, tool of science that there is. But scientists long ago learned to accept that mathematic formulae can precisely predict the outcomes of what are seemingly messy physical processes, uh, and and they often marvel at this connection between mathematics and physical manifestation. Uh-huh. So because they trust it so completely, because the mathematical formulae that, you know, was predict- that, that Einstein developed predicted certain behaviors in the universe – they have now measured those behaviors and measured them over and over. And they say, you know, they can, they can be confident that those mathematic formulas are representing true reality. So at a certain point, long about mid-20th century, perhaps before, um, mathematics, rather than um, explaining and creating formula to explain observed experiments, observed discoveries in the physical world, and they flipped it and they began to just use mathematics to explore what could be the deeper truths of the physical world. And they're exploring it at such a degree now that um, experimental verification of what they're finding in their math 
is lagging way behind. Uh-huh. But yet, because the math is so true, if you will, because their equations add up to things that make a certain kind of mathematical sense, have a mathematical harmony, a mathematical beauty, they trust that what their math is telling them is a <clears throat> a truth that has yet to be proven. So it's math that has really taken physics out into this positing that there is a two-dimensional reality that underlies the three-dimensional reality of our physical universe. This is why you often hear of uh, the notion that there are uh, many universes possible, not just our one, because uh-huh. their math is telling them that there is this huge ocean of energy in which not just one bubble-like universe of similar to our own can exist, but that a virtually unlimited numbers of bubble universes could exist in this uh, two-dimensional energy verse, as I call it. And that's all, they've gotten to all of that belief, all of that near certainty, just through mathematics. Well, I've often been amused by the fact that, you know, they 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 started out with, you know, is there a God or is there not a God? And they got around it by suddenly discovering what they thought was the God particle. So they made the God particle a physical, uh, you know, a physical thing so that they could prove that God did exist, which, you know, I thought was humorous. Yeah, it it is humorous. It got a little bit... Um, misinterpreted by uh, journalists. The the idea of the God particle was not the way the scientist, uh, Professor Higgs, actually thought about what he was uh, suggesting existed. He he was trying to find a reason why anything in the physical universe has mass. So according to the the discoveries in the particle colliders like the one at CERN and uh-huh. in the mathematics of uh, high-energy physics, there was no real reason why anything in terrestrial terms should weigh more than anything else. If, if uh, an atom of gold is just energy and a hydrogen atom is just energy, why does the gold atom weigh more? Or in physics terms, why does it have more mass? What, what gives it um, this experience we have of it, of, of weighing more. And so the Higgs particle is, was really part of a, 
an idea that included what's known as the Higgs field. And the Higgs field is actually more important to the theory than just the particle alone. The, the, the finding of the particle really confirmed the presence of the field. And it was the presence of the field, the Higgs field, that gave gold, an atom of gold, more terrestrial weight than the uh, atom of hydrogen. And therefore, the journalist kind of ran with this notion and said, ah, this, is, this was God's way of creating the physical universe by giving it <laughs> heft, and, heft and weight. And, and they kind of ran with it. Uh, and Higgs was always embarrassed when somebody referred to his theory as, as the God particle. But what it was proven to be... Um, in CERN's uh, particle collider not that long ago was that the Higgs particle, as predicted, did exist, and it seems to confirm his model. And the, the model of the Higgs field is often compared to um, molasses. <laughs> so <laughs> when, you're, when you're trying to move an uh, object through molasses, if you have a like a tiny blade, a knife blade, you can move it through molasses really easily. But if you have a big, uh -huh. big wooden spoon, it really is harder to move it through the molasses. So the Higgs field, because it interacts with the energies in the atoms, uh, that interaction creates kind of a, a, a friction. It sort of slows down the motion of gold, if you will, compared to the motion of a hydrogen atom because it interacts with the field. And so that's what gives really the illusion of weight to all three-dimensional matter. Mm. Okay. Actually, that makes a great deal of sense. Um, I do want to get into also, I want to make sure we, we get into M-theory because um, I'm sure people will be fascinated by it. So. Well, M-theory is perhaps the most significant intersection between science and uh, metaphysical slash spiritual uh, teachings. And uh -huh. I find it uh, so fascinating because it correlates to spiritual teaching so closely. So M-theory is the kind of on the frontier of physics. And it is one of a family of disciplines collectively known as string theory. And they all have the same foundation in string theory which is that there is a, uh, a substrate of energy everywhere that is made up of potentially little rings and strings, little vibrating rings and strings of energy that are as much smaller than the atom than the atom is smaller than the human body. So these are billionths of a billionth of uh, in size, uh, 
um, compared to the body. So these rings and strings of vibrating energy are, according to the basic theories of string theory, the basic tenets of string theory, provide all the energetic substance for everything in known creation, known to to physics, not necessarily known to saints and sages and near-death experiencers, but known to the world of physics, and that those rings and strings uh, in their high-intensity, high-frequency energy end up creating all matter, end up creating uh, space, end up creating uh, everything that we know. So M-theory takes that foundational assertion of string theory, and it, among others, is the one that posited this universe, this ocean of energy surrounding the physical universe, that the the rings and strings are not confined to just being, uh, you know, sort of like a... Uh, um, universe-sized foundation for the universe. Instead, what M-theory posits is that uh, the universe is just a small manifestation of a vast ocean of energy. And in M-theory, they posit that the ocean of energy is actually has a layer-like structure that there are what are called brains, B-R-A-N-E-S, brains, not to be confused with our physical brain that is in our skull. And these brains um, each have different energy density, or put another way, each brain has energies within it that vibrate in a a band of frequencies. And then the next brain, we have to use the term up and down, although it can be confusing to think of up and down in a uh, in a realm that is spaceless, but we're just going to go with up and down because it's, otherwise it's impossible to talk about. So if you go up from the lower density, lowest density brain, you have another layer with higher frequency energies in it and another layer above that with higher frequency energies and so forth. Some um, sort of mathematical expositions of M-theory suggest that there are uh, just a handful of these layers. Some have more, like seven. Some have more, 10, 15. But all of the mathematics of M-theory require there to be some degree of this brain structure, this layer-like structure. Now, that happens to correspond so beautifully with the structure of the heavens that that's why I find it such an astonishing connection between spiritual teachings and uh, scientific theory. So in... Every tradition, every major religious tradition in the world, there is the notion not only that there are heavens that people go to after death, and in many of those religions, 
you you shuttle back and forth in incarnation after incarnation, but that you go to these heavens and that these heavens are also layered. So in Hinduism, you have seven layers, which is the most typical number of brains that you find in M-theory. And each heavenly layer, each heavenly realm, as it goes up, becomes more refined so that you have the highest heavens, which are the uh, closest to pure spirit, and then you have the lowest heavens, which are closest to the way the earth uh, looks and is formed. And that the state of consciousness in the people who are residents in these various ascending heavens are increasingly refined in their awareness up to and including the highest level of the heavens. Now, when you read stories about near-death experiencers, they will often talk about having been essentially given a tour of the heavens and that they will describe going lower in the, the heavens than the, where they enter, so to speak, and they start to experience very negative, heavy, emotionally fraught, dark regions, which corresponds to the general notion that there are hells. Hells are nothing more than where people of like-minded but negative like-mindedness go, and then and then they have to live with each other, um, <laughs> which is hell. And then uh-huh. there are higher levels than the one they entered at. And for them to be given a tour, uh, it's often mentioned that they're kind of surrounded by the light and love of their guide and they're taken up in these realms. But they can't stay there because it's, even though it's beautiful, it's a higher level of perfection, they're really uncomfortable at that level of frequency. And then they often ask to, to you know, return to where they entered. And that's why we go to these various layers of the heavens because our vibrational comfort zone fits one or another. So that's one really just perfect fit that M-theory has for spiritual teachings, for for, um, metaphysical structure of the cosmos. The other is that it's from M-theory especially that we get the notion that our physical universe is a holographic projection from the two-dimensional energy-verse. And this, again, fits some of the core teachings that you encounter in what I think of as, you know, universal spirituality, and one of which is um, that the heavens create the earth, that um, as above, so below, that the, the heavens are a template. Each higher heaven prof- uh, provides a, lo- a template for the lower heaven on down the levels until 
the lowest range of heaven, sort of closest to the vibrational frequencies of the earth, provides the template for the earth. And that's why people often experience a very earth-like experience. It's more beautiful, it's more perfect, but it's very earth-like. There are mountains, there are oceans, there are rivers, there's rain, there's snow, uh, there's grass, there's flowers. All of those elements, as more perfect as they are, are echoed in our in our physical world. And this fits the notion of M-theories, kind of mechanism of how the three-dimensional Earth is created from templates and forms that exist in the two-dimensional energy verse. This, fascinatingly to me, uh, gives a mechanism for how and why each one of us has a hologram, if you will, a perfect us existing in the astral regions that then manifests and projects, holographically projects, our unique physical body in this three-dimensional world. So just as the universe has a heavenly template that is projected as a physical template, we have a astral template which is projected projected as our three-dimensional physical body. And that template is our astral body. That's our two-dimensional us that we simultaneously experience. That's our one foot in heaven and our other foot <laughs> in our physical body. And this is, uh, you know, I find it fascinating that M-theory has contained within it the seeds of what is a, you know, a millennial spiritual teaching, that we have an astral body, we have a subtle body, and that when we drop the physical body in death, we immediately become aware of this energy body. And it's it's more perfect than our physical body, but it just looks just like it. And uh, it has the... Um, shape and form a, a great saint uh, Sri Akteshwar said that when you're in the astral regions you realize that your form is a coordinated image of light so your coordinated image of light body is what you are always in but we're just not aware that we're always in it and it's always and continuously manifesting the physical body that we're more aware of. But this dynamic goes on unceasingly between the physical and the astral, that we are in both bodies, if you will, and that we couldn't, we couldn't have a physical body if we didn't have the two-dimensional holographic a template that projects the physical body. So you can see, I perhaps you can appreciate why I love M-theory <laughs> so much as a, as a confirmation of profound spiritual teachings. The, uh, the symbol of the, the hands in prayer, 
to me has always has always been a symbol of the physical and the spiritual merging together in one. Mhm. So, you know, I definitely that that makes great sense. Um who or what or how are the are the um densities of the brains determined by? Where do they come from? Um I can only answer that in that really broad stroke, which is that it's an inevitable part of the mechanism of creation that uh, in in, um, electrical terms, you have a hydroelectric dam that is generating gigawatts of energy, of electricity that has run through all these high-tension wires that march across the country, and they are stepped down by degrees, but but uh, uniform degrees, until it's just enough current to power your house. So I would say that the unfathomable amount of energy that is created that is the two-dimensional universe or energy-verse is stepped down in these successive brains until it has at the right frequency level to be able to do this holographic creation of the physical universe, which is itself yet another step down in current, um, sort of analogous to our house. So, so as you ascend in these different levels, um, and, and and obviously your 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 energy field is you know whatever it is becomes. Is there a process of of um, being able to through successive incarnations raise your frequency to the point where you go to another level, to another level, to another level, or or is this the level that, that, you know, you are going to be throughout all creation? Well, as I understand it, um, your astral body is another body. Your astral body isn't you. Uh-huh. Um, you are pure consciousness. You are pure spirit. So in the same way that you refine your physical body in sojourn after sojourn, incarnation after incarnation that allows you to go to a particular realm in the heavens, uh, that process never stops until you refine your astral body to the point where you transcend even the the highest of the heavens and um, become, you know, formless yet unique in your awareness of the infinite spirit of which you are a part there's a there's a tendency that for everybody to think that um this doesn't sound like a good plan right <laughs> people are i think are are put off by this notion that 
spiritual development will eventually lead to the point where we merge into God, where there's no separation. And people see that almost as uh, death of self. But I am very fortunate to to have a kind of grown up with the teachings of Yogananda. And in his teachings, and particularly from his, his guru, Sri Yukteswar, um, he says that we attain that uh, oneness with God without, and I quote, any loss of individuality, that we are each unique expressions of the infinite God. And we never lose that uniqueness, and yet simultaneously we have the oneness with the the ever-new joy that is God. And it, it defies Western logic. Western logic says... Either unique, either you're unique, or you're part of God. You can't have it both ways. But what Yogananda <laughs> basically said is, yes, you can have it both ways. It's just the way creation works, and that Western logic um, is not the only way to arrive at truth. Uh, you know, direct experience is far more uh, valid measure of what's true and what isn't. So. We make that journey through who knows how many incarnations before we fully remember, fully realize, fully self-realize that we are that, that we are the infinite spirit. And the infinite spirit is us. Uh, as we uh-huh. go through that process of of growth, we become more joyful, more able, more loving, uh, more serviceful, more energetic. Uh, everything that we want in this life that will make us happy, truly happy, is a part of our higher self. We're just discovering that we are happiness in a way. We are <laughs> the joy that we seek, uh, but we, we have to find it through, uh, unfortunately, a lot of trial and error. Uh, well, I think you but know. But that's we, why we have so many incarnations. Well, and we've also experienced um, masters, sages, and mystics who have attained that and are here, obviously still working on it. Because if they weren't, they wouldn't be here. But you know, we we have experienced people who have come to a level of consciousness that. Oftentimes we don't understand. I mean, many of the Tibetan monks um, are there, or, or or maybe this is just their lifetime of experiencing that kind of unusual way of becoming spiritual. Um, I, I, you think of people like Mother Teresa. You think of you know people that you know have walked among us and have rubbed shoulders with us and. So that so that you know that that there are people here that that have attained a level of consciousness, love, whatever you want to call it, that 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 is above and beyond what what the rest of us are experiencing at this moment in time. So it yes, you you have seen people like that. I've 
met people like that, and you know, obviously you have too, so that so that you can see where people are attaining a greater level of understanding of what a lifetime is about. Um, the Buddha, uh, you know, I, I, you know, there 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 are so many sages and saints that that you know we have you know, are, are in our history, but there are also some that are walking among us today. And mm-hmm. I think it's, 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 you know, you look at them and you think of, I'm not sure that's my idea of happy and happiness and purity and all of that, but, but they do. And that's, that's, you know, they've gone through um, a, a tremendous journey to get to where they are. And, you know, if they, if they, um, if they aren't happy that that you know they certainly wouldn't come back this way i mean there's there's the reality right. is that they have you know f- they have actually struggled through a lot of the stuff that that we struggle through every day and you know it's not their turn to struggle that way this lifetime certainly they right. probably have or they've have. attained that they've attained yeah. that themselves uh, there's a saying and i can't remember who who said it but it's one of my favorite saying which is that uh, a sad saint is a sad saint indeed. <laughs> that there's really, there's really no such thing as a sad saint. That I would um, think not. You know, ashes and sackcloth are a, a means to transcend physical attachments and live in nothing but God's love and joy and bliss. They're not a a lifestyle that you need to adopt in order to, uh, you know, make God happy or, or, um, you know, that that's the ultimate, the ultimate way to live. The ultimate way to live is to feel God saturating your being and to feel your heart just brimming with love and your being full of joy and spontaneously wanting to give and serve to others uh it is an attainment that i think you know you use the terms the term masters that are here still working i would say the masters are the ones that have finished and there aren't many masters but i would number am, among the masters you know jesus and the buddha and krishna and uh, and and others who uh-huh. came back they incarnated again on purpose to tell us with the greatest clarity because they don't have any confusions left to tell us with the greatest clarity uh, what we should do to attain the same thing ourselves and they come and you know 2000 years later we have uh a lot of misinterpretations of what Christ said or what Krishna said or what Buddha said. Uh Um, And it gets kind of fuzzy, but, you know, new masters come and and tell it to us afresh. And they tell it to us in a way that is not um, confusing us by its archaic language and its sort of old analogies that are no longer fresh to us. But I think... Yeah. You know, God wants us to return. God wants us to uh, make our way back to him as speedily as possible. And he sends 
his masters. He sends his saviors uh, repeatedly to help us do that. And I, I think it's fascinating that, you know, for, for one thing, almost every major religion out there is founded on the golden rule and love. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's what they're founded on. And, you know, after, after the foundation, then a whole bunch of weird stuff happens and you have corporate entities, which is, I'm pretty sure, not what, what was intended at the first but right. I, I, yes, it's kind of like you, you kind of think of there, there are there are those that have founded those philosophies sitting someplace having drinks and saying what were they thinking, and right. and you know it's um, maybe not drink yeah maybe a drink who knows but but it to me. You know, I, I, I'm not sure I would include saints in this because usually people that have been sainted have been sainted in, in very uncomfortable ways, and I can't imagine anybody signing on for that. I think of St. Joan, for one. Um, I know Mother Teresa someday is going to be sainted for sure, and anybody who ever touched her or was in her presence knew that there was a light in her that absolutely could never be extinguished. Um, I think I have a I have a saying on the wall someplace here that that was hers, and she said, "I know God, um, I know God trusts me that I I will always do the right thing and in the right way and at the right time." And it's just I wish she didn't have quite so much trust in me because the plate is full. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know I and I think that's you know that is the one thing about. All of the spiritual, wonderful stuff that has happened and the people that have been involved in it, the one thing that I find missing in a great deal of the material on all of them is the element of laughter, which I think is so important in anybody's spiritual pathway. You know, the, the having, having joy and laughter in your heart has to be one of the most important things in the world, and people make it so serious that they take the laughter out of their life and and that to me is is going from a 100 watt bulb to a 20 watt bulb i agree um here where i live uh at ananda community um i've been here now uh with a couple of couple of times away helping other communities get started in other parts of the world but uh in general i've been here for almost 50 years and one of the delights for me in being here and being surrounded by people who are seeking God is, in fact, how much humor and laughter there is. Um, we have had um, uh, people have chosen to be uh, monastics. That is to say, you know, they they choose a portion of their life to just focus inwardly and not get into relationships and. Uh, so we would have groups set, you know, we would refer to as nuns and groups we would refer to as monks. And I remember with delight that peals of laughter from the nuns in various community gatherings when, you know, something funny was told. That there was just a uh, an explosion of delighted laughter coming from them and, of course, from from everyone here. Uh, so I couldn't agree with you more. Um 
the spiritual life should not be a grim business. If it's a grim no. business, you're you're doing it wrong. Uh, it's not to say there isn't discipline. It's not to say there isn't times when you have to kind of push through difficult things. Um, but it shouldn't be so grim that there isn't joy and humor and love and laughter in it as well. I Yeah, I totally agree. I know um, I, I was ordained a long time ago, and I did serve in the pulpit for five years, and I found that um, the very first time I did a sermon, I put everyone to sleep, and I probably took a nap too. And I found <laughs> that... I found that um, it was more important to share things in my life where I had screwed up and explain why and how and spiritually speaking how it was a better way to go. And I found that if I could get them laughing, I knew that the message would get across. And, Mm -hmm. you know, from then on it was like, you know, okay, so this is what happened and, 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 it, it's it's amazing because, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later, people will walk up to me and say, I remember that sermon you gave on whatever it was. And he, I, I took it to heart and I've applied it and y- you were right. And so to me, without that joy, without that laughter, without that spontaneity um, that lightens the moment, I mean, Laughter lightens the energy field. Laughter is a healing aspect. Laughter, and and in all the books that I read, um, I find it not brought out as much as I think it should be. I mean, life is not a joke. For sure it's not a joke. But but how you perceive it and how you deal with it and how you how you use laughter to to dissipate energy that isn't isn't that's that, that so confused it's unbelievable if you can get that laughter going in a very genuine gentle way you're on your way to understanding something you're on the way to working something out you're on the way to to seeing there's humor in almost everything and and it's 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 a very it's a precious gift when you can get people to join you in laughter because then then it means that not only are you, you know, if if you are the cause of the laughter, that's even better. And Lord knows I had enough mistakes in my life to go on forever in talking to people about <laughs> how I screwed up. And 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 it just it's it's kind of like I'm still standing here. I'm still here. And therefore, at 79, um, you know, there's there's a purpose to laughter, and it's so important to to take it not to take it out of your life because you feel that it's not respectful because i think god laughs us at, at us all the time to be honest or laughs through us too that's true too yeah i think that, that yeah. without that laughter without the joy um there's there's you know there's something missing you know are are you going to screw up your life oh heck no and if you do you can come back and do it again but but it's sort of like make sure that the, that your practices with, with the seriousness of meditation and the wonderful places it can take you at the same time the joy and celebration of life is also very important 
so that there has to be a balance. It can't be all one way or the other. I agree. And and you know, it's I think it's something that we we, you know, I I don't I I don't serve in the pulpit anymore, but well, yes, I do. This is what the radio show is. <laughs> but uh-huh. it, <laughs> I mean, it's named Night Light for a reason. It's here's a light in the darkness. Listen to it. See if you see if anything resonates to you. If it does, take it up, check it out, and apply it if it's if it's appropriate. And I think that that it's it's so important. I'm still growing. I'm still learning. I know you are too. And it it's kind of like. This is what we've learned. This is what we found out. And, and you know, in, in, in a month or two or three, there may be a whole other level of, of these little brains that, that, you know, we figured out, and there'll be more to share. So it's, it's a never-ending journey, and, and I think that it's so exciting. You never arrive until you, until you pass over, and, and then you start again. So it's, it's you know, it's sort of like, I think climbing the mountain is more important than actually arriving at the top because when you get to the top, there's another mountain waiting for you. You're going to have to put it that you keep on growing until you become endless. Yes. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's not an endless journey. Exactly. No, but endlessness is the, is the goal. Yes. It's not that you've arrived, it's that you're there. That's a great way of looking at it. I like that. So so people should, I, I think your book is fascinating, and I really think people should take a look at it because it, you, you have been so thorough in giving them different modalities to utilize, and you've been very specific about, you know, the, it's worked for you, but, you know, to try it, and if it doesn't apply, find something that does. But, but you've been very meticulous about giving people suggestions as to meditating and and how to do it and where to do it and how to apply it. Um, it's it's definitely a step by step by step book, and that's what people are looking for. They're they're, you know, there's so many people out there saying do meditation and then not going into how. And and if you want to rewire yourself for something, you've given the, the step-by-steps of how to do it. And I think that's, that's something, it's a how-to book. And I think it's important that, that people understand that, that, you know, this book will actually give them an understanding of how to get into meditation, how to rewire themselves, how, and, and, an, understa- and, and an understanding as to, um, you know the cup of coffee analysis. You, uh, you know that you gave about. Um, <laughs> I love that. I'm a, I'm a caffeine addict myself, so um, so it resonated with me tremendously. But you you kind of have laid it out there so beautifully that that it's easy to understand. Even though you do go into quantum physics and stuff like that here and there, but but for the most part. It is an absolute amazing book on a how to um, get into meditation, do meditation, how it can affect your life, and how to rewire your brain. And, you know, that's something I think that all of us, you know, need to pay attention to. Oftentimes we think, you know, well, that's the way it is. And no, you can change it. 
All you have to do is work at it, and I think the element is, you know, you have to be willing to work for it in order to achieve it. And most importantly is you can rewire your brain so that you break through the brain's limits. Oh, yeah. The brain tends to reinforce our activities that we entertain every day that are conscious activities, uh, and, and it becomes a, such a strong set of habits, a strong set of circuits that keep firing and firing and firing and keeping you engaged in the world that you that you deal with on a daily basis that you can't escape it. So you need to make a conscious choice to rewire, to, to break through those limits, to rewire, to uh, break into super conscious awareness. Yeah, and don't try to do it all at once. I mean, that's don't try to do it all at once. No, <laughs> that doesn't work. Uh, pick an area that you're comfortable with and, and work within that area. And when you get to the point where things are flowing, then then you can expand it. But uh, to try to become a saint overnight is just not an easy thing to do. And it, it probably won't be very successful either. <laughs> usually but, becomes a uh, grim business because people's ideas yeah. of being a saint are usually not so happy. That's yeah. true. That's true. And, you know, like I said before, saints often had a bad ending. So, you know, try to try to merge yourself into the flow of this energy in a very gentle way because it will take you on an amazing ride. And it's it's not a roller coaster exactly ride, but at times it is. But, you know, hang on for dear life because the journey is absolutely worth it. Um, I just noticed our time is up. Um I am so looking forward to having you on again. We're going to talk about the yugas next time. and That'll be uh, fun. Yes, it will be. <laughs> but thank you so much for all you've shared, for all you've put out there. I so appreciate the work and the effort that you've put out there, and, and I'm sure anybody who has listened to you understands your dedication and your authenticity as well. Well, uh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the um, you know being able to share through channels like you developed uh, so lovingly over the years uh, it, it's a you're allowing me to to preach from your pulpit and I under, I appreciate um, <laughs> just how how valuable your pulpit you know is really in the grand scheme of things we need lots and lots of pulpits that people will. Uh, go to for inspiration and and guidance well thank you it's 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 a true joy to have you on and i look forward to having you back so uh for now let me say good night and um and good night to you thank you so much and thank you everybody for being here uh we're going to be back tomorrow night no tomorrow during the day with mark eddie So please check out the calendar and find us there because he's got a super show coming up. And thank you for listening. Thank you for being out there because it's so nice to know that you are there and that you're listening and that you have found value here from time to time. So check out the YouTube channel. Please subscribe if you get a chance. 
And we will be seeing and, no, not seeing, but talking to you tomorrow. Good night now.